We greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed our souls, saved us by his blood. As Pastor Andy said, my name is Brandon Reddick, and I have the wonderful privilege of being able to share God's word with you this morning. I don't want to prolong the time, but I do want to tell you and say publicly how grateful I am for your pastor and Pastor Andy. Um, he has been a breath of fresh air in our city, and everything that he said about me, I would say the same thing about you. So I love you, man, and I'm grateful for this invitation to be here with you, and I'm so glad that God brought you to Wichita, Kansas to preach His Word and to lead God's people here at City Life Church. I'm going to try to… There we go. That's your pastor. That is your pastor. Amen. It, it is an appropriate response to honor the man of God. Uh, sometimes it feels like church people think they owe the pastors the ministry of humility. And uh, we ought to be humble. We want to be humble. Uh, but I don't always need that ministry from my church. Uh, I have other things that will keep me humble, like disappointment, discouragement, detractors, and the devil. What I need sometimes for my brothers and sisters in Christ is to say, keep on going on, Pastor. We love you, we're here for you, and we're so grateful for you. And so once again, let's give God praise for Pastor Andy Atkinson. Amen. Amen. My assignment this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses number 7 through 11. Let me preface my message by saying this. One, I am passionate in everything that I do. And so you're going to see me be very passionate this morning in my preaching. All right? Two, I get hot. So I have a towel here. So in a few moments, I'm going to wipe my bald head because I sweat. All right. It has been said by one author that the first sentence cannot be written until the final sentence is written. This particular author said she would often write the end of the story before she wrote the beginning and middle of the story. She did this because it was the end of the story that determined the shape of the rest of the story. Everything unfolds in light of the ending. Another author, you may know her, J.K. Rowling, or a good American, J.K. Rowling, <laughs> had the idea for the Harry Potter series on a train ride in the 90s. And she began writing the first book in that series that very night. Not only did she begin writing that book that night, but she also wrote the last chapter of the last book at the very same time. The whole series was mapped out because the author knew how the story would end. Beloved, 
This principle is at play here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter begins these verses by telling his readers about the ending. And here's what he says in verse 7 8. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Thus, knowing how the story ends, there is a certain story that is supposed to play out by believers. Peter's message to his readers and to us is since Jesus is coming soon, live accordingly. In other words, every moment of our daily lives is to be lived in light of the knowledge of our soon coming Christ. Let's jump into this. He starts off, I got two simple points this morning. He starts off in these verses by first giving us the incentive for Christian living the incentive for Christian living. He says the end of all things is near. That word in doesn't simply mean the cessation of something or the termination of a thing. That word end in the Greek telos, T-E-L-O-S, it means purpose, intent, or result. It refers to a goal achieved or result attained. It speaks to a culmination, consummation, realization of something. God's end or God's telos is when all things will be made right. And beloved, that comes, that happens when the, with the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes, he will deal the final blow to Satan, sin, and death. Friends, when Christ comes, he, sickness will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. Sin will be no more. Satan will be no more. You're missing your uh, cue to say amen. Death will be no more. Darkness will be no more. God will dwell among his people. All things will be made new. God's goal for all things, Peter says, is drawing near. Christ is, the coming of Christ is approaching. And friends, I have one little simple thing to say at this point. We are living in the last days. And we've been living in the last days since Christ returned to his Father and sent the Spirit down on the day of Pentecost. And this is the truth that Peter conveys to his readers and to us. This is their conviction. This was to be at the forefront of their minds. This truth was to dictate how they lived their daily lives. Before I move on to my second point, I think it's important for me to say at this moment that for way too many believers, the truth of Christ's final return is often a dormant truth in our lives. We believe it, but it, unfortunately it doesn't influence how we think or how we act. Rarely do we make daily decisions in light of the fact that Jesus is coming soon. 
And Peter challenges us today to change this reality. We are to be people with eternity on our mind at all times. Eternity should shape our worldviews, our beliefs, and our hope. So the end of all things is the incentive or the motivation for how we live our daily lives. All right, preacher, so tell me, how then shall we live? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at that. After moving from the incentive for holy living, he now gives us the instructions for holy living. The instructions for holy living. What are the instructions? Well, in the B part of verse 7, he, first, he says the first instruction he gives to his readers is to live soberly. Say soberly. Peter says in the second part of verse 7 that we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. That word translated self-control in our text means to be of sound mind or to be prudent. It is a call to exercise good judgment amid uncertainty. Yes, Christ is coming soon, but don't lose your head. By the way, can I just tell you, the fact that, the, the, this, the fact that Christ is coming again doesn't mean we should start drawing charts and creating dates. He says, no, what we ought to be doing instead is living in light of that reality. They don't know exactly when the end will draw near. They don't know exactly when the end will be. Therefore, they need to keep their head and be of sound mind. Not only are they to be of sound mind, but they are to be sober-minded. This idea of being sober-minded is clearly contrasted to what you all studied last week in verse 3. When, when Peter described the way of the world that involved drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. Drunkenness causes one to lose control and to be unalert. And Peter says, with the end of all things being near, it is imperative that Christians be alert and on watch. They ought to be sober-minded by being free of every form of mental and spiritual excess, passion, and confusion. Both of these words, self-controlled and sober-minded, have to do with preparation as well. Prepare for the end of all things. As we remain sober, we must prepare, be watchful, be on alert, because Christ could come at any moment. No man knows the day nor the hour when the Son of Man will appear. So be watchful. Be alert. The old church that I grew up in, they would say something like, don't let the Lord catch you with your work undone. We must do the works of him that sent us while it is day, for night cometh, when no man could work. Be watchful. Be alert. He says, as you are, as you live soberly, it will lead to prayer. Uh, uh, friends, let me just be real, real straight with you right here. The only way that I am surviving in these last and evil days is on my knees. 
I need the Lord to lead me, to guide me, to keep me, to protect me, to help me keep my mind because we are living in some evil times. You better learn to pray. And that's the only way the readers of this letter that the Apostle Paul uh, could, could make it is through prayer because evil was on every hand. They were facing persecution for their beliefs and for their convictions. So he says, you got to be sober-minded so that you can pray. In the words of one poet, we got to pray just to make it today. <laughs> I only got five laughs because nobody, somebody doesn't realize that's MC Hammer. Dun, 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 dun. No, that's not him. Never mind. So he says the first instruction that he gives, he says, let me tell you how to live with yourself. Live soberly. But not only must I tell you how you, can, how you must live with yourself, but I'm going to tell you also how you must live with others. Live soberly, but also live lovingly. He says in verse 8, above all, Keep fervent love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. When Peter says above all, he's saying most importantly, your greatest concern, even in the midst of persecution, your greatest concern ought to be loving one another. The most important behavior in living in a hostile world, church, is for the body of Christ to love one another. We are to love one another, he says, fervently. That word fervently means with constancy, with perseverance. We are to keep on loving one another, even when the other person is being hard to love. Keep on loving. Even when they don't act right, do right, or stay right, keep on loving. When times are hard, keep loving one another. When you're tempted to write them off, persevere in loving one another. Love one another, church. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now let me be clear. What Peter is not saying when he says love covers a multitude of sins, he doesn't mean love covers up sins. Mm -mm. It doesn't mean looking the other way no matter what the other person does. It doesn't mean excusing wickedness. So what does it mean? It appears that Peter has in mind Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12. One of the rules of the interpreting the Bible is the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So when you see a scripture quoted, you need to go back and see what it meant in its original context. Can we do that real fast? Peter, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So the love that covers a multitude of sins here in 1 Peter is the opposite of hatred that, stares up, that stirs up strife. Love that covers a multitude of sins, then, is a love that doesn't keep score. Love that covers a multitude of sins is a love that doesn't respond when provoked. Love that covers a multitude of sins is a love that doesn't retaliate when wronged. It's a love that refuses to perpetuate cycles of tension and division. 
It's a love that doesn't repay evil with evil. It's a love that doesn't uh, feast upon quarreling. It's a love that rather is patient, kind, keeping no record of wrongs. It's a love that forgives. Let me see, y'all done got quiet. I'm you're falling asleep, so let me tell you a story. One day, a couple was having, they were having a heated argument. It was intense. It wasn't my wife and I, by the way. It was very, very intense. And so finally the wife said, time out. We need to write all of our grievances down and then share them with one another. So they took out some notebook paper. They began to write them down. The husband looked at his wife. He just, eh, eh, eh. The wife looked at him and she said, eh, eh, eh. Husband would look back up after writing a little bit at his wife and just get even angrier and write some more. The, hu- the wife would look back at him. Oh, I got more than that. And they kept going back and forth for a few cycles. And then she said, okay, I have no more room to write on my paper, so we should just exchange now. So they exchanged papers. When the wife looked at her husband's paper, she wanted to grab hers back immediately. Because when she looked at her husband's paper, all he wrote was, I love you. I love you. I'm angry, but I love you. I'm frustrated, but I love you. I don't want to be here right now, but I love you. This husband had learned that love covers a multitude of sins. And that's what we need among the people of God, is we need a love that says, I'm going to stick with you and stand by you because I love you. Now, now, to really have this kind of love, we've got to have a different understanding of love than what the world believes love to be. I'm going off manuscript real quick and then I'll come back. This, this is a soapbox because we hear all this talk about love is love and love this and love that. And, 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 and unfortunately, we've reduced love to simply a feeling. Love is mere sentimentality. Love may involve that, but love is much more than that. Love is not simply a feeling. Love, friends, is a commitment. Love is a commitment to seek the good of another, even at one's own expense. Oh, you don't even see me coming. Let me give that to you again. I said love is a commitment to seek the good of another even at one's own expense. You just sang about it. You said love sought me and the blood brought me. Now that's love. What is love? For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you want to know what love looks like, I dare you to look 
up to the cross. There at the cross, we see God's love. Jesus with a crown of, head, a crown of thorns on his head, being pitched in his side, nails in his hand, nails in his feet. And there he died. The sinless one died for sinners. The innocent one died for the guilty. He that knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that's love. Oh, oh, Andy, I just did some free marital counseling for you. Oh, how our marriages would look differently if we understood love to be a commitment to the other. Oh, how our churches would look different if we understood love to be the primary factor behind what we do, what we say, how we live, how we treat one another. Friends, we gotta love one another. Thank you, sir. Come on, come on here. Love, love. Where am I? Somewhere. <sighs> Beloved, we should be known by our love. And unfortunately, we oftentimes are not known by our love, but we are known by our fault finding, exposing the shortcomings of others, holding grudges, church splits, but those who have experienced the abundant, immeasurable, inseparable love of God should exude that same love to one another. Oh, I wanna hang out right there, but they only gave me a few minutes. He says we ought to live lovingly, but not only should we live lovingly, but we also need to live hospitably. Verse nine. Peter makes it, he says there, show hospitality one another without complaining. Friends, love not only forgives, but love welcomes as well. See, see, what, what do you mean, preacher? The words love and hospitality are tightly connected. The word hospitality in the original language, it literally means love of stranger. A stranger could be a foreigner to a country or simply a guest in one's home. And for the first century church, there would have been many Christian travelers for various reasons. Some were traveling as itinerant preachers and evangelists and missionaries. Others were traveling because of persecution. It was no longer safe to stay home. So Peter says, for the church, in light of, God's, of Christ's coming, we ought to love one another by welcoming one another into our homes. When the church gathered, they needed to be a loving, welcoming church. This is still applicable for us today. We need to be a welcoming church a hospitable church. As strangers and aliens in this world, the church should be most compassionate towards strangers in our world, but also in the church. Friends, the church should be the model for hospitality. A few years ago, I went to a conference in Tulsa that was essentially about creating an exciting and engaging worship atmosphere. 
Well, I remember more than anything from that conference, because, you know, Pastor Andy, I had to learn that when you go to some things, you have to eat it like fish. Eat the meat, throw away the bones. And it was pretty bony. Okay. So, what I remember about that conference more than anything was the first class level of service and hospitality I received. Y'all, they wowed me. Outside of preaching in football, I'm, I'm pretty like here. All right? You get me to a, before a football game, I'm here. Give me the preaching, I'm all the way to the ceiling, all right? I'm pretty here. So when I say I'm impressed, it's impressive. So I'm there, my, my wife knows me best, so that's why she's laughing so loud. They, they, it, it was just first class service. They came and, and during, break, uh, during the breaks, they would have drinks on a tray. And I'm like, where am I? It, if, you, they, they, if you needed to find some room in the facility, they didn't just say, it's over there. They said, let me show it to you. I'll walk you there. It was first class service and hospitality. Later on in the conference, the pastor told us the secret to why they were so good at this. He said, we took a team of leaders to Disney World. Oh, if I could get the bridge to pay for my family to go to Disney. In the name of hospitality. <laughs> I might try it. <laughs> he said, we took a team there to Disney World to learn about first-class service and hospitality. And while I am impressed by that church's creativity and developing a welcoming culture, Part of me, Pastor Andy, was a little unsettled. The church shouldn't need to go to Disney to consult Disney on hospitality. Disney should be running to city life in the British church asking, how do you be so hospitable? Friends, the church should be subject matter experts on hospitality. God himself welcomed us into his family. You do know we were orphans, right? We didn't deserve to be a family, but God welcomed us by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins, and he welcomed us into the family. And now we have a room in the house. We ought to be welcoming. I know this ain't for city life. This is for the bridge church person that's watching and supposed to be at church right now watching our own service. But every Sunday that you show up to church, you can't just talk to people you know and like. You have to have a hope, an open circle in your friendship groups so that others can come in and feel like a part of the community. I wonder, Pastor Brett, how different our churches would look if we were more hospitable. What a fellowship it would be if Christians would open their homes to one another and get to know one another. A few months ago, the Surgeon General released a 17-page report on a new public crisis. And that public crisis is the crisis of loneliness. And loneliness is affecting our physical health, mental health, emotional health, and spiritual health. 
And it's no different in the Lord's church. Beloved, this should not be the case in the church. We ought to be, Christians ought to be the most connected, but yet we are not. So Peter says, in light of the Lord's coming, be hospitable to one another. Finally, and I'm done, that's, I'm a Baptist preacher, so that's my first close. <laughs> Finally, his final instruction to us is we must live responsibly. What do I mean by that? Let me show you. Peter says in verses 10 through 11, he says, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace as good stewards. A steward is responsible for the assets of an owner. So we are stewards of spiritual gifts, gifts of grace. Peter says a few things to us here. He says, first of all, he teaches us some things about spiritual gifts. First, he lets us know that every believer, every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Every believer is a gifted believer. So then no Christian can honestly say that they have nothing to offer the church. You have much to offer the church because you are gifted. You have a role and vital part to play in the Lord's church. Child of God, you are gifted. Peter then says that these spiritual gifts are grace gifts. Somebody say grace. It is a gift of grace, meaning that it's a gift that's not deserved or earned or merited, but was given freely to us by our God. They are given to edify the body and not pump up the gifted. The gifts are not given for self-congratulation. They're not given for you to boast about. No, they are given to you to serve the Lord's church. He says the purpose of these gifts is to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Your gift is to serve the church. It's not for you, it's for the church. Couple of implications and I'm done. That's number two. Serving in the Lord's church is not about you. You are gifted to serve others in the Lord's church. Now, the last time I checked, being a servant is not comfortable or convenient. Which means that being a servant means that you may have to serve at times and in places that are inconvenient and may require sacrifice of time and presence. 
how much stronger, I don't know a lot about city life, so I may be messing up here, but how much stronger of a church would city life be if we had 100 participata- participation, what am I trying to say? Participata- participation, there it is. Thank you. I don't even know what point I was making now. How, strong, how much stronger of a church would city life be if we had 100% of the people serving? All right, I got a, a couple of heads. And it's not just about city life. I'm not, I didn't come here to pick on city life. It's the same thing at the bridge. We, we would have a lot less burnout if all the gifted people served. All right, y'all getting quiet. I'll go home. <laughs> Serving is not about you. It's going to require some inconvenience and it may be uncomfortable at times. It requires sacrifice because here's why. Servants don't get to do what they want to do. They serve at the pleasure of the master. That's what a steward is. A steward is responsible for somebody else's stuff. We don't own the gift, we simply manage the gift. We are responsible. These gifts have been entrusted to us. And beloved, here is the job requirement of a steward. It is required of a steward that they be found faithful. We need to be faithful stewards in the Lord's church of the gifts that God has given to us. Peter breaks down spiritual gifts into two categories real quick and I'm out. Speaking gifts is the first category. He says, those who speak, speak as uh, one speaking the oracles of God. These speaking gifts can be gifts such as prophecy, preaching, teaching, tongues, exhortation. Whatever the speaking gift may be, whoever has a speaking gift, they are to serve the church by speaking as speaking the oracles of God. The oracles of God, that's language from the prophets. The oracles of God are indeed the words of God. And Pastor Andy, this, this, I needed this verse a few weeks ago. Our church, uh, um, I'm talking to Pastor Andy, so don't y'all listen. Our church is going through the book of Romans right now. And uh, I'm going through Romans, Romans, I hit Romans chapter 1, and I get around verse 24 through 27. That, that's the passage that deals with same-sex relationships. Now, if you're not aware, as a pastor in 2023, no matter how gracious and loving you are in preaching on this topic, you can't win. In a worldly sense, there is no winning. You will be accused of being hateful. But verses like this remind me of my duty as a preacher. I am to speak as one speaking the very words of God. Therefore, we who have speaking gifts, we don't equivocate, we don't apologize for God's Word, we don't water down God's Word, we stand on the Word that is unchanging, inerrant, infallible, inspired, and authoritative. We speak because we are speaking God's Word. And you do know that God's Word is powerful, don't you? 
God's word creates new life. Uh, 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 you don't believe me? Come here, prophet Ezekiel. Will God's word create new life? He said, let me testify for you this morning uh, because the Lord sent me to go prophesy in a valley of dry bones. Uh, and the God told me, he said, I want you to preach to these dry bones. And when Ezekiel spoke, the dry bones started coming together, all because he preached God's word. But there was only one problem. There was no life in the dry bones. And so guess what God had the nerve to tell Ezekiel to do? He said, speak to the four winds and tell them to breathe life into these dry bones. And Ezekiel began to preach God's word to the winds and the winds obeyed the word of God because that's how powerful God's word is. And now the dry bones had life. So much life that the bones stood up on their own feet. That's how much power there is in God's Word. God's Word creates life, church. Oh, let me get the other half of the crowd that didn't want to come get with me. Jesus, Jesus will testify. The Word of God creates life because you know what? They called Jesus and said, Jesus, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus had the nerve to wait four days after hearing that uh, Lazarus was sick and had died. But Jesus told uh, his disciples, he said, this sickness is not unto death before the glory of God. So Jesus shows up four days later. That, and he goes to the grave, and here's what Jesus has the nerve to do. You know Jesus is God, right? All he does, when he comes ready to uh, uh, raise Lazarus from the dead, he didn't have to get a shovel. He didn't start digging. All he did was say, Lazarus, come forth. You know what Lazarus did? Here I am, because there is power in God's word. Okay, I wish I had, let me go get the other third and then come here. There is power in God's word. You do know uh, without God's word, none of us would be believers because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Y'all, I'm excited because I love God's word. It was God's word that saved my soul. It was God's word that sust that's sustaining my life. Y'all don't know my story and I don't have time to tell you, but I can tell you, if it had not been for God's word, I'd have checked out a long time ago. But God's word reminded me, weeping may endure for night, but joy comes in the morning. God's word told me he will never leave me nor forsake me. God's words told me his promises are yea and amen in Christ. I love God's word. It's sweeter than honey on a honeycomb. Oh, how I love his word. Oh, my 35 minutes is up. Second category, speaking gifts. I mean, serving gifts. Those could be giving, leaving, administration, mercy, and helps. If you got them, he says, use them with the strength God supplies. That's how you avoid burnout. Do it in God's strength and not your own. Friends, the reason we do all of this, verse 11, is that in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Everything we do is for the glory of God, so that God will be praised, so that God will be honored. So as we leave here now, this is my close. Is your love for others and service to others glorifying God? Does it make God look good? Do you enhance the reputation of God with your love for others and service to others? Or does your inactivity tarnish God's reputation? 
Our love and service to others should lead to the adoration and worship of God. Friends, the end is near. Let's live in light of that glorious truth. Let's pray.